Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It offers flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business. You can also earn up to $395 in annual statement credits on eligible purchases at select business merchants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own? Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. So there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Welcome to the Jill on Money podcast. It is Saturday, March 13th. Are you ready to spring ahead? You know, we're moving the clocks. You're going to lose an hour of sleep, but it's going to be nice and bright when you wake up. This is good for me, although it is never bright at four o'clock in the morning when I often wake up. Today, we have Tim Harford, and we have him tomorrow as well. Tim Harford is fantastic. He has written a bunch of books. He writes in the Financial Times. He's been on our program previously. He has a new book out that I loved. It's called The Data Detective, 10 easy rules to make sense of statistics. Now, I love statistics. Mark, do you know that that this is one of my go-to classes when people say to me, oh, what class should my kid take? I always say, make sure that every single child of yours takes one statistics class, even if it's like the easy version of it, not the heavy-duty math one. I love statistics, but it can be really confusing. And I think we've learned that with COVID, that a lot of the statistics that were out there, people were really confused about how to make sense of them. Well, Tim Harford, he can help you. He's going to hold our hands through this. As always, as you listen to the program, if you've got a question, don't forget, you can always send us an email, ask Jill at jillonmoney.com and let us know if you like Tim. I think he's just Marvy. Okay. Here is our interview with Tim Harford. So, okay. First, Tim, why did you write this book? You are a, a wonky kind of guy. You work at the FT. It's like your day job. You're a presenter. You do all these things. Like, why did you write this book? Don't you have a hobby? I, I have a hobby, by the way. I, I like to play Dungeons and Dragons. Are you surprised? But, but in between <laughs> all the nerdy stuff, uh, my day job is also nerdy. Look, this is actually quite a, a big book for me because for the last nearly 15 years, I've been presenting a show on BBC Radio about numbers called more or less. And it was originally tucked away in an obscure part of the schedules where no one would ever hear it. And it's gradually got closer and closer and closer to prime time and is on more and more often. And one of the reasons for that is the pandemic, the sudden realization that the numbers really matter. 
but I, I was resistant to writing a book about numbers because I felt it's been done so often. People have done such a great job. There are so many really great books about how to think about statistics. And it's only really been the last couple of years that I felt there was something missing. Actually, two things. One was the realization that so much of what we think is nothing to do with the technical interpretation of the statistics. It's about our feelings, our preconceptions, what political tribe we're in, what we wish was true, all of that stuff. And so what's the point in writing a book that is purely about technical aspects of statistics if I can't help people be wiser about themselves? So that's what I'm trying to do. But the other thing that I felt was missing in a lot of books about statistics is they're all so negative. They're all self-defense manuals. They're all, the moment you walk out, you are going to be mugged in the street by a misleading statistic. And of course, there's a lot of misleading stuff around, but there's a lot of truth around as well. And for me, statistics are like, they're like radar. They are showing us things we, we can't see in any other way. They're showing us what's coming at us. They're helping us focus our response, focus our strength. If all of the books about statistics are actually all about bad statistics, I think we're giving the wrong impression. So that's really where this book is coming from. You know, it's interesting because I was reading your book and, you know, I was trying to do something when I wrote my book about personal finance and I talked so much about emotions in it. I think people were surprised because they were sort of like, well, you know, aren't you just supposed to tell me not to time the market because statistically da 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 da. I said, well, I actually wanted you to understand that your emotions are going to always lead you astray. That's why you keep screwing up your financial life. So it seems to me that what you've done is you've sort of married statistics and behavioral economics in a way that is really quite useful. So what is it about the world of statistics that you think is misunderstood by the vast majority of those folks who tune into your show? I think the thing that people don't understand is that it is simultaneously a lot harder than they think and a lot easier than they think to make sense of statistics. It's harder because of all the emotions that get in the way. You're absolutely right to emphasize the emotional response. It really governs how we think and what we do. Before we start thinking, we've got to notice our emotional reaction and get on top of that and at least recognize it. But then once we've done that, I think the rest is actually a little bit easier than people tend to think. They, they're on the lookout for these highly technical points about correlation versus causation and p-values and oh, percentages of percentages of percentages. And it's all so hard. And actually what I'm saying is, no, what you need to do is ask yourself some pretty simple questions like, Where's this number coming from? Is it a big number or a small number? Is it going up or is it going down? What exactly are they measuring anyway? Those fairly straightforward questions get you so much further than all the technical jargon that could possibly fit into a book. Can you talk a little bit about that story you tell uh, when you were on your the subway system in London, which you said was a moment where you, you know, here you are commuting back and forth to work, which I presume is pre-COVID. And, I dimly and, remember, yeah. Right. And by the way, both Mark and I have spent some time in London. So there are many things I thought about on my very, very, very long train ride from Canary Wharf to Chiswick. Okay. So that was a very long commute for me. So what were you noticing on your ride in the tube that made you curious about statistics? 
the strange thing was this. It was busy. The, the bus was busy. The train was busy. That's not strange. It's London to busy, busy city. The strange thing was, I happened to know what the statistics were showing. And the statistics were showing that the typical London bus has, I forget, but about 10 people on it. That's the average occupancy, maybe even less. The average tube train, the occupancy is about 100 people, which given that you might have eight or 10 carriages, that's like 10 or 12 people per carriage. It just seemed really strange. How come it's so busy that I can stand on the platform and two or three trains have to go past before one of them has enough room that I can squeeze on? And yet I'm looking at the statistics and they're telling me that this train is 90% empty. And that's representative of a broader challenge, which is that we're always trying to combine information from our personal experience and from the data. And I think the wisdom comes when you're able to get them to fit, when you're able to make sense of both. And in this particular thing, part of what was going on, obviously, was I was traveling at rush hour. But there's a subtler statistical point. If you imagine a uh, say a, a tube line, a, a, an underground line, where all the trains are absolutely packed going west, and they're all completely empty going east, which is actually pretty realistic for you know certain parts of rush hour. Well, ask yourself, okay, what's the average occupancy of the train? Well, it's 50%, right? It's absolutely full west, and they're completely empty east. So on average, 50%. Then ask yourself a different question. What is the average commuter experience? And the answer is every single commuter rides on a completely packed train because nobody is on the empty trains to witness them. And it's not like a trick of the statistics. It's not like a mistake in the statistics. It's just trying to understand what is it that this particular statistic is showing us from the point of view of the, the people managing the train system. They're absolutely correct in realizing that the trains are underutilized. They're half empty. We also have to recognize from the point of view of the commuter, it's absolutely rammed every single time. If you think hard and have fun with this stuff, you actually can make sense of this. And it's, and it's not a complicated idea. It doesn't require you doing statistical analysis because what you're really saying and what you're laying out in the book is that, you know, you're sort of saying you got to understand what your feelings are and you have to figure out kind of your own experience. But how is it that... Even when presented, okay, let me give you a, a specific example. I will report every single month on the monthly jobs numbers. And invariably, yeah. I get people who say, well, you know, that's a lie. You know, there's really this many people or there's this many, there's nuance to this report because there's, you know, there's an unemployment rate, but there's a broader unemployment rate. But why is it that that report, which I sort of think Bureau of Labor Statistics, kind of great part of the government, why is that conjuring up sort of anger or disbelief among the masses when the news is good or bad, frankly? So there's a couple of things going on there. It's a great question, I think. A couple of things going on. One is it really matters. If people feel they have plenty of access to lots of good jobs, that's really important. And if people don't have access to the jobs they want or no jobs at all, that ruins lives. People are, become really miserable for good reason. So there's a reason why it matters what this number is. And then, well, why do people have these really strong feelings? Why do people say, oh, it's a lie, it's fake news? I think that's because so much of what we now perceive is 
through the lens of political partisanship. So either your guy's in office or your guy's out of office. And if your guy's in office, you constantly want to be saying the job numbers are great, things are going great, my guy's a, a good guy, he's making the right decisions. And if your guy's out of office, just flip all of that. And you, you can actually see this with, I mean, Donald Trump is, is an unusual president in many ways, but the, the, the sheer fact that all the way through the uh, election campaign where he was elected in 2016, he was saying, these job numbers are terrible, they're terrible, they're, they're, it's all fake news, the jobless numbers are much higher than you think. And then the moment he, he got to be president, it's like, oh, the job numbers are great because I'm doing a great job as president. So that was a particularly striking example. But so many people are doing that same little dance in their head. The truth is, and this is one of the central arguments of, of the book, there are often lots of ways to see things. There are lots of different ways, as you know very well, Jill, lots of different ways to measure unemployment. There's no single correct answer. You know, there's a headline figure, there's a traditional answer, but there's no one way to measure this number because it's complicated. The world's complicated. And so there are two possible approaches. You can say, I really want to understand all the nuances, all the complexities. It's a complicated story. I want to understand the complicated story because it matters. Or you can say to yourself, I'm in this to win an argument. And so whether I say the job numbers are high or the job numbers are low is all about which side of that argument that I'm on. It's very human, but I think it's very sad because everyone who grabs a number trying to win an argument, they're not making themselves any smarter. They're not making anybody else any smarter. They're not actually going to win the argument anyway. So why not let go of that and instead just be more curious and open-minded? You're really talking about like letting go. You're talking about emotions again. And I wonder if you saw this playing out in front of you, because I, I guess you wrote most of this book before the pandemic and you wrote the beginning part. Did you go back and do the introduction perhaps after? I found it fascinating in terms of the election coverage and then the pandemic, just the idea that people get very uncomfortable with math and numbers and certainly statistics and probability, okay? And so what is interesting is, do you think that the pandemic and just the the on-the-ground lived experience has gotten people to a, a better place in trying to distill this information? In other words, you find that this person now understands that, oh my God, one case can turn into four cases, which turns into 16 cases. Do you think that we're better at this now after going through it? I think we are. Let, let me first respond to your speculation about when I wrote the book. You're absolutely right. So I wrote the, the most of the book before the pandemic. And then we had the lockdown here in the UK late March, and I was supposed to send the book to my British publishers at the end of March. And so I just said, I might need a little bit more time. And it turns out I didn't need that much more time. Mm -hmm. Because every single point I was trying to make in the book about how there's more to this than trying to win an argument, about how numbers really matter, about how they show us things we can't see in, in, in any other way, about how they help us make life or death decisions, and we really depend on the numbers being accurate, and we really shouldn't take the numbers for granted. All of those things I was trying to say, suddenly I was like, ah, okay, I now have a really, really good example, a really clear example. It's a heck of a way to be proved right. I would rather be struggling to make the case for, you know, why this book mattered, but 
Anyway, the pandemic came and made all my points for me. And so it actually wasn't very difficult. You just go through the book and go, oh, by the way, COVID-19 gives us a really good example of this point, or COVID-19 gives us a, a good example of that point. Has it, ha has it helped people think, have more confidence in mathematics? Um, maybe. I, it was certainly, it was this very strange moment that it was strangely refreshing for a nerd like me at the beginning of the pandemic. And, and of course, it was terrifying and it was anxiety provoking. And I lost a good friend to COVID very early on. Peter Sinclair, the man who persuaded me to become an economist, died of COVID end of March 2020. So right from the start, I knew this was bad and I felt it very personally. But there was also this moment of, of going, finally, people understand that the numbers matter. Finally, people have stopped trying to win arguments. They, they, everyone is suddenly paying attention to the numbers and trying to understand. They want to know what's going on. They want to know how this thing is spreading, how dangerous it is. Of course, that it didn't take long before it all got polarized. And there were the people who were the lockdown skeptics and there were the mask skeptics and that's the way things are. But there was this moment where people were actually focusing on the numbers. And I, I hope that people remember that and hold on to that. And yeah, there are ways that numbers can lead us astray, but a lot of the numbers are, were not that complicated to interpret. Uh, you could see those curves, you could see those exponential curves ride, uh, rising, and people really understanding, oh yeah, this matters. And by the way, all the statisticians, the epidemiologists, all the, all the geeks who are out there trying to gather good data, that effort matters too. Okay, don't worry. We've got a whole nother episode tomorrow with Tim Harford, which is fantastic. If you've got a question, if something's on your mind, if you're maybe checking out your whole tax situation right now and preparing your taxes and you need some help, send us an email. It's askjill at jillonmoney.com. Askjill at jillonmoney.com. Don't forget that we want you to wash your hands, to wear your masks, to maintain your physical distancing, and to lift someone up today. And uh, here's our mantra for 2021. I feel like we're, we're on the precipice, Mark. We are on the precipice of like getting beyond this terrible period. Grit, we've needed that. Growth, let's hope we have some growth in this last year. And let's have some grace. Grit, growth, grace. Thank you for listening. We'll talk to you tomorrow. 